So we've just finished the Stations of the Cross, walking at the, around the lake here at Bombo. And it was a little difficult at times to hear Catherine uh, and Giovanni who were leading it because of the frogs. <laughs> I've never heard such loud frogs. And it reminded me of the the last time I followed this, the way of the cross, which was in Jerusalem a few weeks ago. And we got up very early in the morning in order to follow the traditional path of Jesus to uh, Golgotha uh, through the very narrow streets of the old city. But even so early in the morning, the, the streets were very noisy and life was going on as usual. Children going to school, people opening their shops, people making deliveries from vans. Uh, and through all of this activity of the city, of any city, this group of, of pilgrims walking through, trying not to get knocked over, and uh, remembering what Jesus went through and what we go through in this dimension of our lives. The dimension that we cannot deny, should not deny, the dimension of death, and suffering. And this morning, as we uh, walked through nature, not through a busy city, we were remembering and making present the reality of Christ's journey, the human journey. Everybody will go through the essential elements of that journey of suffering and death in some way. And there are people, tragically, who will go through it with the same degree of physical and emotional suffering and loneliness. Most of us, we pray, will go through this dimension of suffering and death uh, supported by good medical attention and uh, by the loving attention of our friends. But however we go through it, we will go through it. So this is why it's it's very meaningful for us and useful for us to remember with reverence and make present to ourselves uh, what Good Friday means. This is a, a verse from, um, from the Gospel of John that describes the, the trial of Jesus. 
One of the guards standing by gave Jesus a slap in the face, saying, is that the way to answer the high priest? Jesus replied, if there is something wrong in what I said, point it out. But if there is no offense, why do you strike me? Why do you hit me? So this is one moment in the account of the passion of Jesus. But it's a very key moment because it opens for us the door to the deepest meaning. We'll never understand all the meaning of this uh, account, but let's hope year by year, and every time we reflect on it, we will go deeper into the meaning. It is one of the greatest texts of humanity that reflects the human condition and finding meaning in what seems to be the end and even the painful end of life. It is, of course, a completely personal story. We see one individual, innocent, falsely accused, scapegoated, and treated inhumanely, tortured, and barbarically executed. These things happen, and it happened to Jesus. It's an old story showing the worst side of power and how humanity uses power over each other. And it's happening as we reflect on it this morning here in Bombeau, in too many places in the world. But each case is unique. And it's the very uniqueness of each story that opens for us the universal significance. And meaning which means connection. To know meaning is not to have an explanation, not to have the answer. What is the answer to the meaning of life? It's not an answer. It's not an uh, explanation. But it's an experience of connection. And the deeper the connection, the more inclusive the connection, the stronger the meaning. And if wherever there is meaning, there is paradoxically always hope. However terrible the, the situation, if we feel connected, there is some level, some measure of hope. So Good Friday expands this sense of meaning. 
And it does this in an unusual way. It brings us onto the side of the scapegoat. And seeing everything from the position of the innocent victim, the scapegoat, we see a very important mechanism in human life. We actually see the nature of sin. We believe, we say, that, that it was because of, that Jesus died for our sins. And we have to understand the meaning of that statement. Probably many of us were told that it means that humanity sinned right at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. And this sin continued, was passed on through the generations. And we ourselves commit sins. And so it's all of these, this sort of infinite debit or debt of sin that Jesus wipes out for us. Well, it's a way of putting it, but it leaves a lot of, a lot of things uh, unsatisfactory. What we can also say is that by seeing and the story from the inside, from the innocent victim's point of view, we are freed from the sin that we commit against each other by failing to love one another, even by treating each other with violence, with, with cruelty, or just by ignoring each other. By revealing this mechanism of the scapegoat, we see how we blame others. We make other people carry our uh, responsibility. We project it onto them and then we make them suffer. The secret of how power works in human affairs is now exposed because we see it from the point of view of the scapegoat. We see the world as it is. We see that violence is irrational. When Jesus responded to the God who slapped him, what do we see? We see the, how, easy, how easy it is for those in power, even just an ordinary policeman or God, to abuse the power that they have. And when we see that, we see the irrationality of it. And how does Jesus respond? With pure reason. Amazing to, to think that at that moment, uh, his mind is so clear, so rational, and even non-judgmental. 
he doesn't say you are a brute, a brutish soldier, and uh, one day you'll pay for this. He, he says, with a question, Jesus asks questions uh, more frequently than he gives answers. Because questions open our minds. Questions change us. Because we discover for ourselves the meaning that we look for. Answers are too easy. Answers easily become uh, dogma, formula, uh, ideology. And we solidify uh, answers into structures of belief. But Jesus gives very few answers. And more often he raises questions. And even at this moment he says, why do you strike me? If I did something, if I said something wrong, tell me what it is. Don't hit me. Don't drop bombs on me. Don't commit genocide. Don't exclude me. Tell me what is what I've done wrong. And if I haven't done anything wrong, why do you strike me? We don't know how the soldier responded to this. Probably for a moment he felt exposed, as, as we do, when uh, reason illuminates our irrational feelings or behavior. But then, like most of us, when we are exposed in that way, we react angrily to defend ourselves. So, probably the soldier slapped him again. We don't know. But we know our response. What is our response? The only real response, of course, is to admit that we deceive ourselves or we are subject to self-deception. And wherever there is violence, there is a lie. There is a denial of the truth. That's one dimension of meaning, of, I think, of the, of, the, of the story, of the passion, what it exposes, what it shows us uh, rationally and honestly. But there's another dimension, which, which is even more transformative. It's important to understand why humanity is so addicted to violence. It's important to reflect on that. But an even deeper dimension concerns the meaning of suffering. Because not all the suffering in the world comes from, from violence. There is suffering, uh, as the Buddha discovered, just there in the nature of the world. I mentioned yesterday 
the, the bodhisattva ideal, which is the ideal that we devote ourselves wholeheartedly to the well-being of humanity. That this is our deepest and strongest uh, conviction and meaning of life. That we do everything we can to relieve suffering in the world. The Dalai Lama comments on, on this ideal when he says, a great bodhisattva suffers, but they generate no negativity in their suffering. They generate no negativity in their suffering. The Gospel goes even further than this. The Gospel shows us the last words of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. So, not only does the cross generate no negativity, it positively generates wisdom and compassion. If Jesus had said, I forgive them because they don't know what they're doing, it would have been weaker, a weaker statement, because it would have been individual. Instead, and remember that non-dual relationship of Jesus with the Father, Instead, he calls forgiveness as a power from the ground of being, from the Father. He sums it up from the, the common ground that we share with each other. This is the same ground, ground that his cross is, is uh, standing in the same ground that the soldiers and the people passing by who are mocking him. It's the same ground. The same ground that his mother is and his beloved disciple are standing there as well. It's the same ground of being for all the actors in the drama of the human condition. And so, the, this is the Father. So, forgiveness comes out of this common ground. And of course it comes through him, because he's the person affected at this moment. So it comes through us individually, but it's not my choice, not my creation. People often um, anguish, about uh, trying to forgive someone who has hurt them. And this can go on for decades. You carry a bitterness, a sadness, an anger within you. 
towards, you know, anyone. And then we say, I can't forgive because they hurt me so much. Well, what Jesus shows us is, it's not you who forgive. It's you who have to be a channel of forgiveness. You have to open up this connection with the ground of being, which, fortunately, is full of forgiveness and compassion, love and wisdom. And you allow this force, power of God, to come through you and, and be channeled into your relationships, into the world, in whatever way is appropriate. It's the same love, but we give it different names according to the problem that it touches. It's the same treatment, but if it involves rejection and suffering and injustice, then we call it forgiveness. So, forgiveness is not a judicial reprieve. It's not only an act of clemency. Okay, I'll let you off this time, but don't do it again. Like a policeman who catches you speeding. It comes, as we see, from a deep wisdom and an insight into the cause of the problem, into the cause of the suffering. And what is it? What is that cause? What is that noise? What's the noise? Oh, maybe somebody else said. Uh, uh, what, is, what is that cause that Jesus uh, sees? And seeing it opens the way into the ground of being which releases this uh, power of forgiveness. It's ignorance. They do not know. These idiots don't know what they are doing. And you may get angry with somebody who does something very annoying to you. Um, but if you can see that they don't know what they're doing, then you don't project your anger and hurt and violence onto them. So insight, understanding, consciousness, opens up the ground of being, the Father's love, the love of God. Where there is ignorance, and lack of self-awareness, there is need for wisdom and forgiveness. And so in this single moment, at the last moment of his life, we see the meaning of forgiveness towards ourselves and towards others. And I think for religious people, we have to learn to forgive God because we have we blame God for many inconveniences in our lives and it's this 
discovery of the meaning of forgiveness and how forgiveness is released. That is the cure or the healing for original sin. What is original sin? The fact that we don't love one another. The fact that we are violent towards each other. It's as simple as that. There are many ways of loving and there are many ways of not loving. So, I think this, this is a way for us to understand what it means to say that Jesus died for our sins, that the cross is a, a, healing, um, a healing power for all of humanity. It touches human nature itself. And tomorrow, when we, we won't have a talk tomorrow, we'll be in silence. I'll say a few things about what I would have said. Uh, tomorrow we, we are silent because Jesus is out of sight. He's being buried. Where's he gone? Nobody knows. But we say he's gone into hell or into the underworld, into the deepest, darkest, strangest caves of not only humanity and the history of humanity, but even into the cave of, uh, of creation itself, of existence. He's di dived deep into that um, depth. So the death of Jesus that we remember and make present to us today generates an enormous tsunami, a, a, a wave of enlightened love. And this washes across all dimensions of reality, backwards and forwards in time into every one of the innumerable dimensions of reality of which we only are conscious of three, usually. All times and spaces. Whether we recognize it or not, his suffering, his enlightened love, touches us all. In this sense, we could say we are not saved by the suffering of Christ, but we are saved by his love. It exposes our human faults. We see the seeds of violence, of a lack of love in ourselves. So it exposes our human faults. So today we think a little about our sin, sinfulness, but without blame, without guilt. That's the big difference. Today, instead of feeling, oh, I committed so many sins, I helped to nail Jesus to the cross. But today we should be able, in a rational way, mysterious way, 
to be aware of our imperfections and our faults, which will still be with us afterwards, but without any self-blaming or blaming of others or any baggage of grief, of guilt. This is why we can say the cross lifts us out of guilt <coughs> so that we can see things clearly and know ourselves <coughs> lovingly. And it does this by revealing our essential goodness and our infinite potential. That goodness and potential become manifest uh, at the end of the story, which is the end of the story, but the beginning of our life that we live in the light of that story. That's why in the cloister here at Bonveau this afternoon, uh, as we begin the liturgy of the, of the Passion, we um, will be invited and to come forward and venerate the cross. And there, are many, there may be many theologies or many beliefs or lack of belief uh, behind that veneration. And you shouldn't come forward just because other people are doing it. Uh, you come forward if you feel this personal uh, meaning and need to venerate the cross. And tomorrow, or in fact after the uh, liturgy of the Passion this afternoon, after the burial, think of the last funeral you went to. What you feel after a funeral? Well, you usually have a party, but not a very happy party. Uh, but you feed and eat, eat a little bit. But then after the funeral, what do you feel? You feel absence. This person who you have buried is not around anymore. There's nothing that can console you for that, really, or uh, uh, distract you from it. So we reflect in the silence of this afternoon and the silence of the whole day tomorrow. We reflect on death. And death is a hard teacher, but a good teacher. At first, it seems like the great enemy. Death is the great enemy. But good teachers in our lives often seem like enemies at some points, at some moments, because they tell us what we, didn't want, we don't want to know. And they pull us into, into a growth that is uncomfortable. But when we have learned from it, it becomes our friend.
In the Katha Upanishad, the boy Nikikitas, young student, wiser than his years, uh, is resolved to find the meaning of truth. And he knows from observation that if he's to find truth, he must penetrate and question death himself. So leaving his home and family, Nikikatas starts his quest across the threshold of the known world. Every wisdom tradition recognizes the importance of remembering that we will die. Memento mori. And every tradition reminds us that we also are tempted. And it's an easy temptation to understand, but we're tempted to deny this reality of death. But Holy Saturday, which begins in a sense uh, this afternoon on, on Good Friday, is the day after. We can no longer deny death. It's happened. And facing this, we also face the meaning of silence. Nothing is more silent than death. People who have lost somebody they love will often continue to speak to them in their minds. But there's no, there's no response, except imagination. So death is silent, but to become silent is to die. To die to ourself, to die to fantasy, to die to denial. The only way we can approach this dimension of the divine that we've been talking about in Holy Week is through the silence of all our faculties, total silence. There is ultimately no observation platform for the ego to take refuge on. And from that platform, we say, oh, how beautifully silent it is here. What it is like to be dead, the living can never know. But we do glimpse some fear that even our body is not private property. We don't own anything. To live with this uncertainty makes us into contemplatives. Because only the contemplative mind can live with uncertainty. The opposite of contemplative is fundamentalist. Fundamentalists know it all. Fundamentalists are dead certain about everything. Otherwise, we construct false certainties and false 
securities. But these rob life of its dignity and depth. In meditation, we do, little by little, the work of silence. And even all our ideas about God become obsolete. In modern secular society, we feel God has died. Here in, uh, in France, Good Friday is not a, even a holiday. In England, which is, uh, in Britain, which is uh, actually more, more secular uh, than France, uh, Good Friday is a bank holiday. But everybody, uh, you know, goes shopping or sits in traffic jams to, to go to the seaside. So God ha has died in mo modern secular society in many ways, but God, su God survives his own death. It is not God who dies, but our images of God, even our most precious images of God. And religious people must let those images go. As St. Gregory of Nyssa said, every image of God is an idol. However painful abs the absence of death, if we embrace silence, we learn that neither death nor silence is negation, is negative. It is empty, it is an emptiness. But when we embrace emptiness, we experience fulfillment. When we are poor in spirit, we become full citizens of the kingdom of God. Happy of the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So what does silence tell us? Nothing. Silence says nothing, otherwise it wouldn't be silent. It has no message for us except itself. That's why we meditate. Silence grows through all dimensions of reality. The silence of the body that we practice in meditation happens not because we are punishing the body or humiliating it, it happens through a careful discipline of moderation and love of self. And this amazing body we have, or let's say the amazing way we are embodied, the body has a million things going on, probably 
hundreds of billions of things going on. They think they said there are more synapses in the brain than there are galaxies that we know about in the universe. So all of this is going on simultaneously. And until something goes wrong, which it occasionally does, until something goes wrong, we don't need to think about it. We don't have to think about the body. But of course, it's more difficult to meditate and to do the work of silence when you have toothache or, as many of us here at the moment, allergies. When your nose is running or you've got pain in your back, uh, the body becomes uh, less silent and uh, it's more difficult to do the work of silence. The silence of the mind is not achieved through force or repression, but through the repeated gentleness of training our attention. Of what Jesus says, or means, set your mind on God's kingdom before everything else. Not an idea of the kingdom, or an image of the kingdom, but the kingdom which is silent. And even more, the kingdom which is silence. Everything, including language and imagination, everything comes out of silence. To live humanly, to live well, and truly see our life as a search for God, we have to return frequently to the work of silence. Because we get noisy very quickly. We return to this work of silence until it becomes like our bodies, like all the bodily operations going on in us continuously, a, a natural rhythm. So we don't think about meditation. We don't think about meditation or the other ways in which we do this work of silence. And there are many ways in which we can do the work of silence. In fact, everything that we do can be a work of silence. Jesus, in the silence of Holy Saturday, dives into the deepest mind of the cosmos and explores every corner of human nature and history. All dimensions of time, all dimensions of space, including many that we can't imagine. And in this descent, he, he touches the singular point of origin, the point where it all happens, from which everything happens. 
Science believes in this point. It's looking for this uh, unified field theory. Where, and scientists will never find it, only, at least not by the scientific method. But they believe in it, and they know that it will be simple. And that simplicity will be true and beautiful. We can't find it just by analysis or measurement. We find it by becoming one with it. Holy Saturday is the feast of silence. It's the feast of the universal stillness at the heart of reality. And when our mind, our hearts, open to understand this, our mind does not become silent, our mind becomes the silence. Beyond all thoughts, words, images, and self-consciousness. And this is the great liberation. This is what we are freed from, delivered from, uh, on Good Friday. As silence and in silence, we now wait for that great event. Life is about waiting. <coughs> we're always waiting. So we're waiting for the great event that manifests the life of love, the life of love, which is also the love of life, which is the source of everything that is and the point to which everything returns. So it's that big event that we will recall or anticipate uh, tomorrow night uh, in the vigil. Let's just end with this. Uh, there's, a, there's a beautiful homily written in the second century by an anonymous uh, author. We might read it again later today somehow. Um, and it's, uh, it begins by describing the silence and the stillness which now descends on the world after the moment of death. And it continues by um, describing Jesus speaking to us and from within and calling us uh, into a union, into that non-dual relationship, and which he describes as when he says, you, you and I form one undivided person. You and I form one undivided person. So he, he opens that homily 
something strange is happening. There is a great silence on earth today. A great silence and stillness. The whole earth keeps silent. <laughs>